Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it. We keep it reals. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so today we're going to be talking about something that we have mentioned on our Facebook site that we were going to start doing, and that is the Richard Dawkins book, Outgrowing God, just dropped last week. And so Amy and I, as good little mama bear uh, apologists, (laughs) got it immediately so that we could start reading through it. And basically, we try to pray before every podcast, just uh, we sometimes forget and usually regret it when we do. I would just would really like Amy to pray before this podcast. I think it really is going to express the heart that we want to have in here. And also, we want to mention that I just found out that Richard Dawkins' mom died yesterday. She was age 103. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter how old someone is. I think there's going to be a a hole that uh, is missing when you have a loved one that goes to be with the Lord. I think, actually, I say that like it's a given. I think she was a Christian. I know he was raised in a Christian household. So, but we just want to lift, we're going to lift up in prayer, not only Richard Dawkins and what he's going through, but just to make, uh, just again, I would like Amy to say her, say her prayer again, not only for our hearts, but for the hearts of those that are listening to, to remember that when we start uh, talking about bad ideas, when we start really using discernment and we start picking things apart, that we're dealing with a real person. And we always want to make sure that we are not going into this just with this kind of attitude of, ha, you know, gotcha, that that's, that's the wrong attitude. So, Ames, will you open us up in prayer? Sure. Father God, we are grateful that we are able to come together and grow in you. We want to lift up specifically the Dawkins family. They are dealing with the loss of their mother who had a wonderful life. 103 years old is is amazing legacy to leave behind. but. It's, it doesn't make the loss any easier. And it, I think it's especially difficult when you have folks within a family who do not have a faith in God because there's no hope for anything afterward. So it, we just pray for their family that, that they are encouraged, that they take joy in the life that she lived and that they find peace in that. And we ask, Lord, for, for your presence in this podcast. Father God, we live in a culture that sees even disagreement as a character attack. And that is not what we are doing whatsoever, Lord. We can interact and debate ideas without attacking the person. That's the whole point of this podcast is to look and to see and to reason well and to hear the challenges and to raise questions about those in the spirit of growing deeper and infusing this discussion with that salt and light that we are called to have. And Lord, we just pray for everyone who is listening right now that you will open their hearts so that they can receive this message to reason well and critically. And so that way they can pass that on to their kids and so that they also can go out and not fear challenges that they may receive 
it can sometimes be a habit within Christian circles that if we hear of something bad, any rumor, we just sort of drift away from it. We stay away. But where we're called to be in the world and to be able to engage in faulty philosophies and to be able to do that, Lord, we have to be aware of what they are. And so we ask for these moments that we become aware of these issues, that we can reason well, and that we can pass them on to our kiddos. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Yeah, my prayer is that, you know, there's a lot of questioning and kind of reality checks that happen when you are faced with death. And so I, I don't know how much death he's, he's faced in his life, but this is certainly just another opportunity that if, he, if, if his heart is willing to be soft, that he can start asking those questions. I don't know what kind of relationship he had with his mom. If it was a good relationship, then there is that yearning that is there to, to be with your loved one beyond the grave. And so I'm just hoping that that's kind of the pebble in the shoe, maybe for him. We're going to go through a couple things. We're going to kind of give a just kind of an introduction to Richard Dawkins. And then we're going to talk about some of the main criticisms of the book and some of the main tactics that we've noticed. So if anyone hasn't seen the article that I posted on the Richard Dawkins book, it's titled How Richard Dawkins Outgrowing God. The name of the book, again, is Outgrowing God. How Richard Dawkins Outgrowing God capitalizes on our culture's inability to to think well, which I really think is kind of what we have going on here. And someone on a thread on Facebook was like, well, Christians do this too. And I said, you're kind of throwing stones at something I already threw stones at in the title. I'm I'm, I'm recognizing that a lot of people in our culture, that's not just non-Christians, that's Christians as well, do not know how to think well. And so a book like this kind of really aims for that demographic of people. And he was actually gearing toward kids too, because I remember when this book, when Talk of It first came out about a year ago, it started filtering around Twitter. And it was saying that he was kind of wanting to write this book for the the kids and teens demographics so that they have something, you know, here we have these books like Mama Bear and Natasha Crane's books and that sort of thing. He kind of wanted to toss his book in the mix too and be like, well, here's my offering to the younger generation as well. Yep, yep. And you can tell from the style of writing that it's definitely geared towards kids. So you know what, but let's bring it. Let's see if it stands to scrutiny. So anyway, we're going to talk about some of the tactics that he used. And then we're going to try to start getting to we'll see how far we get. Uh, We're going to at least try to get through chapter one, we're hoping to do chapter one and two, but we shall see since we might have a little bit of a lengthy, lengthy intro. So that is kind of the roadmap for today. So first off, we're talking about his upbringing. And We tried to see if he had some sort of hyper fundamentalist upbringing. I'm not, we're not seeing any evidence of that, but I kind of want to talk about just a little bit about the idea of hyper fundamentalism and how that has played a role in atheism because John and I kind of refer to that as the great atheist maker. Yes. (laughs) Because every single atheist that we have encountered, well, I won't want to say every, I'm sure there's somebody that we've encountered, but I honestly can't think of them. The atheist doesn't think super deep, that kind of throws out the same arguments, that kind of has this real anger towards, you know, the God who, of course, doesn't exist, has all come from the same background of a hyper-fundamentalistic Christian background. So, Amy, what are some things that you would think are like, let's talk about hyper-fundamentalism, like what does that look like within the church? I think we see a good example of that too, when you hear Jesus kind of taking down the Pharisees, you know, it was all this sort of legalism, even to the extent of even petty issues. In fact, there was just a, an article that Sean McDowell had posted written by a 15 year old girl. 
talking about how churches could rent win back teens like herself if they were just more welcoming and more and less judgmental. And one of the things that she mentioned that really sort of infuriated her was this overemphasis on a, you know, ankle length skirts and head scarves and everything just to attend Sunday mass. And so when we think of hyper fundamentalism, it's almost this you have to obey, you know, these very strict little rules. You have to check off every single box. If you don't check off every single box, your salvation is in question. It's kind of like a no-win situation. You're all constantly <laughs> stressed about, okay, what did I mess up on? What did I miss that all of a sudden I'm not going to be welcomed into heaven because of this? Yeah. In fact, uh, Mary Jo Sharp has a book out right now. Oh, golly. Why I Still Believe, that one? Yes, thank you. Where she talks about when she had first become a Christian and uh, she was ready to go get baptized and, and she asked her husband before they left, is this outfit okay? Is this outfit okay? And they got to the church and the very first thing that the, pa- you know, it was like her first time to meet this pastor's wife. The very first time she meets him, she's like, that outfit's not okay. I can't remember if she said something like, you look like a hussy, but it was along the lines of you look like a hussy. And she was sitting there and, and like, this was her very first exposure to church culture. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I think she was like, you know, she didn't think the neckline was too low. And she, I mean, she looked, she tried to figure out what it was and couldn't figure out what it was. And honestly, I think that might've just been the enemy playing into her fear that this woman blurted that out. My father-in-law had a similar experience, not with not with necklines or, or anything, but he had just been... A, <laughs> was he, he showing a little too much chest? <laughs> you know what? The chest hair was peeking out. Gone too far. <laughs> he had just been a new believer and he's a very creative guy. I mean, his paintings are ridiculous. And But one of the things he had done is he had just become a new believer and he had written this song and he was so excited. He, he wrote this song and I guess it was to sort of this upbeat kind of rock music while well, he brought it to his friend who had led him to Christ. And his friend said, oh no, this song is of the devil because it's rock music. And it's, oh oh my gosh, you know, and there, you know, you kind of get this glimpse into this hyper fundamentalism. It has to meet not just, it can't just be music. It has to be a specific type of music. You know, there was a period of time where there were certain classical musicians that they said, this is the devil's music. And that we oh, think funny. of classical music as like, I want to say asexual in, in terms of religion. It's like a religious. It's, it, you know, there's no words, but it's like, apparently there were certain beats that were even like, oh yes, no, that's no, the devil's I saw music. a documentary on that. It was even certain musical notes. They were considered like, especially the <laughs> low ominous notes. Those were the devil's notes. And it's, oh golly. Yeah. You, know, you didn't want to play yeah, those. So another, I, I think one of the biggest things that comes from hyper fundamentalism is you don't question authority. And this is where I think that we, you get the, the kind of the great atheist maker like John and I talk about is this idea that you don't question authority. You you take what you're told. If you ask questions, that's akin to being rebellious in some way. And so someone who's a question asker, like I, you know, I, we talk about it in the book and I've talked about it on podcasts. I'm a question asker. You look at, you know, my kindergarten report card and comments from my grad school professor and everything in there is all about the number of questions that I ask. And so if I were in a church that basically treated me like I was rebellious for asking questions, who knows where I would have ended up. But yeah, it's like I can understand wanting to leave and then assuming. And this is the thing that happens, I think, with hyper fundamentalism is you have this thing about don't question authority, do what you're told. Here's all these extra rules. And they're all equally important for salvation is that you assume that all churches are like this. And this is the thing that I have a, that I've, I've never seen the people that kind of end up in atheism because of this background be able to recognize 
is that that's just a branch of church. That's just a branch of Christianity and not Christianity itself. That distinction, it's because that was their experience growing up. That's me. That means that's how Christianity is in general. And so this is why there was a, a woman from, oh golly, she taught at Biola, Jana Harmon. I think she did studies on why atheists, you know, maybe who had deconverted at some point reconvert. And one of the things that she found in the stories, I think it was her dissertation that she did, was when an atheist comes across a Christian who defies their expectations and defies the stereotype and defies what they think all Christians are like. And once they have that category in their head, all of a sudden they're willing to open up to the evidence. But it's that idea that all Christians are like this is the thing that just shuts down any willingness to even consider the evidence. And so we don't have evidence that this is where he comes from, but I got to imagine there was something like that, that going on because his profile is too similar to all the other ones that I've seen that have come from this background. Yeah, it's definitely one that, that just, it leads folks astray all the time. Some people might ask when he lost his faith, and he actually addresses this in the book. And then there's a couple of other articles that it, it was like he started questioning around age nine. And I think like by his teens, I think when he discovered evolution, that was when he's, I think he was holding on by a thread just because he was so in awe of creation. And once he had evolution introduced to him, he just, it, it's kind of like that quote, who's the one that says uh, that uh, evolution made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist? Oh, I haven't heard that one. Oh, you haven't heard that? No, that's a great we'll one. look that up and put it in the podcast notes. That might have even been Dawkins. I'm not sure. It, it was either someone back in Darwin's time or it was one of the new atheists. But so just knowing that he started questioning around age nine and Amy, Amy, remind us, what was it that happened that made him go down this rabbit trail of doubt? Well, and it's interesting because he, he talks about how he had been raised in just this normal Anglican upbringing. And his, his family was very, you know, pro-science. They loved investigating and that sort of thing. But one of the things that he mentions that really sort of, that sort of struck him at nine was that he concluded that if he had been born to Viking parents, then he would have believed in Odin and Thor. Or, you know, if he had been born in the Middle East, he would have been a Muslim and that sort of thing. So he sort of saw his Christianity as just something of consequence, something that just sort of happened. It's it's a sociological result. I just ended up this way because my parents happened to also be Christian. And so that sort of really planted those initial seeds of doubt is what he's saying. And other websites and things that we have seen have said that there's other things that played into it. And it's usually more than one issue. But that was sort of the first, those first little seeds of that made him wonder, you know, why do I believe what I believe? And I think it was his mother who basically, and I got to imagine, I wonder if she was doing this to try to prepare him for the other worldviews that were out there. His mom was actually the one that was like, hey, there's these other religions. But this kind of shows us the importance. I don't, I don't know for a fact what she did, but that she presented, uh, from what it sounds like, from what he says, she presented the other religions, but she didn't do anything to say, why do we believe Christianity and not these other religions? So it's like, it's, there's, there's something to be said for exposing our kids to the objections, but we really need to follow those objections up with good, solid evidences. Otherwise, you'll, you just kind of leave them hanging with this question and they never get past it. Because honestly, I, I think one of the, the comments on this article that someone made on Facebook, they said, you know, he's been arguing like this for years. This isn't anything new. I think he's dumbed down his language for 
so that it's not, nah, I don't want to say dumbed down, but he's kind of made it kid friendly to where it's, it's an easy read for them. But his line of argumentation is the same that he's been doing in all his other books, the ones that were aimed for adults. And so you kind of get the idea that he got this idea stuck in his head at age nine, and he never researched it past that. And so I think he's actually pretty good at writing for kids because I think he can kind of go back to that's when he stopped trying to find answers so he can phrase it perfectly for for kids because that's kind of where he is intellectually when it comes to investigating religion and when it comes to specifically investigating Christianity. Well, didn't you read too that she had said that there are other religions and they all believe different things? Which yes, I thought was good, you know, because obviously I, I, when you had first said that, I thought, well, you know, I could see a struggle happening if she had said, well, they all say different things, but roughly they all end up coming out equal in the wash. You know, I could see that causing doubts, but she actually yeah, specified. Yeah, she said they all basically say the same thing. That to me would have been a little bit more confusing than saying that they believe different things. Yeah, so it does make you wonder that with her saying, oh, there's different things. It does show the importance of, okay, well, now... That's where you need to take the next step of saying, well, let's start investigating the claims. Yeah. So like I said, it seems like he kind of stopped investigating this around age nine or 10. And you can see this in some, some of the quotes that he has where he's showing that he really has no concept of any of the evidence that has been given for some of the, the statements that he's making. For example, he says that nobody has the faintest idea who really wrote the Gospels. We have no convincing evidence in any of the four cases. I'm sorry, but there are volumes that are written about that. And so the one that we would recommend is looking at Cold Case Christianity. And one of the reasons why I like that one is it's written by someone who spent his life as a detective. So he understands what evidence is reasonable evidence, what evidence is not permissible in a court. He understands evidence. When he took that knowledge and went uh, back and started studying historical evidence, he just applied a lot of the same criteria to there. And so I think in, in some ways, that's a legitimate authoritative book in the sense that you, it's not coming from someone who says, I think this is how evidence w works. This is coming from someone who says, I study evidence for a living for the past 30 years, and here's how it affects claims made in the, in the Bible. So he actually goes through the chain of command, how we know what books were written by who because we can follow, he, he calls it the chain of evidence, I, I think, where the evidence passes from one person to the next, and we can follow it all the way back to first century. And one of the other things that he says that kind of gives an example of how he's just, he's kind of stuck at a nine-year-old's understanding of the evidence is he, he says, it's a shame people don't realize it was little more than chance which books got included in the canon and which were left behind. I think he probably just made some joke about the rapture before, but... Um, a nod to the series. I know, right? So I, I want to just recommend the book Journey from Texts to Translations by Paul Wegner, and we're going to have links to these in the podcast notes, that if you're really curious about how the canon came to be, was it just chance? Then, you know, here, here's a book that you can read about this. And this is just, I mean, this isn't just the only book. It's not like this is like a super unique book. It's the only one written. Of course, Dawkins doesn't know about it. There are volumes written about this and this idea, this dismissive attitude of like, oh, well, nobody knows. It's just lazy. It's just lazy. It's not a fair treatment of evidence. And I think as we move into how he treats evidence and his sort of presuppositions, you'll see that 
you know, it, it isn't a, a fair and balanced look. He's coming at it with his mind already made up, his arsenal already ready. And you see that in the way he pre- presents the evidence and what he expects evidence, uh, how much there should be and what it should say. You, you see it all in there. So some of my cre- main criticisms of the book, again, I, w- I would recommend going to Mama Bear Apologetics and look up the Dawkins Outgrowing God article. But so first off, I've kind of belabored this point that his understanding of the Bible never really got past that nine to 16 year old level. So the, the poor scholarship I actually have listed in there, there's an Assyriologist who just went on this like 20 tweet rant on Twitter. <laughs> that's my, that's <laughs> commitment right there. Did you that? That many is commitment tweets? right there. I know, right? And so I actually linked to that in the article of just going through all of the things that he's like, this is what Dawkins says. This is the truth. Here's what Dawkins says. Here's the truth. The, it's just sloppy scholarship that uh, you don't even really get the feeling that he tried to make it correct. Again, we're going back to that nine to 16 year old kid that doesn't have the patience to actually research these things. So another criticism would just be that I think he's desensitizing kids to statements that are straight up false and giving them the impression that no answer exists. And that's kind of like from what I said about some of those statements about, you know, we don't have the faintest idea who wrote the gospels, you know, it was just chance that put the scriptures together, or statements along the lines of, Adam didn't really exist. It's these really big sweeping statements that make it sound authoritative, but it's not. It's just a statement. So also, he takes tough parts of the Bible and puts them in the worst possible light to draw an emotional response. And you'll see in the article how I talk about the story of Isaac and Abraham. And I think we can all agree that that's a really difficult story in the Bible. And so what you do, though, is if you take tough parts of the Bible and you just stop at hey, that's really tough. And let me illustrate how tough it is. Well, okay. Yeah, we all we're all on the same team. That's a tough passage. Let's see if we can understand it. But if you never go past that, you're just going to have this really rudimentary understanding. I like the way my husband phrases it. He talks about like, you know, you kind of have this thin veneer of what most Christianity is where people, you know, they just believe and they've read the Bible and that's it. And you dig just a little bit and you find all these problems and supposed contradictions. And it's like the people that get to that spot go into a panic of, oh my gosh, can I even trust this? But the thing that they don't realize is that if you keep digging past those, you have this entire foundation of really solid answers. But if you stop at that level where the questions exist, all you're going to think that exists are the questions and no answers exist. But you have this just I like how Dan Wallace says, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to answers and evidence that are beneath all those questions, but you have to keep digging in order to find them. What's interesting too, is you see a lot of, and like these first couple of things we've covered, if this sounds familiar, it's because it came up a lot when we were talking about Hillsong Guy a couple of podcasts ago, that you you saw a lot of this same stuff happening. And so I just thought that was really interesting reading the book is like, oh man, there's a little bit of a pattern here. Yeah, Hillsong guy, no, what's going well, At least he had, he says, no one's talking about this. He, he actually st- states that Dawkins doesn't actually come out and say no one's talking about this. He comes from the assumption that no one's talking about this and doesn't even state that that's his, his assumption. He just says it authoritatively of nobody's talking about this. And he's not even trying to draw attention to it. He's just stating it as fact. At least Hillsong guy was trying to draw people's attention to that, even though it was totally false. People like lots of people are talking about this. He was at least trying to get on a soapbox of like, hey, we need to do better here. Dawkins is like, no, nah, nobody's done it. 
Well, and part of Dawkins, as he was saying, and he said this in other talks and instances forwards, he'd prefer folks to be more agnostic when it comes to this sort of thing. And so, and you see that a lot coming across in his writing is his goal is you just would rather you be agnostic about it. Yeah. So, so one of my other critiques is he uses modern examples of conspiracy theories as proof that the gospels were riddled with lies without acknowledging that there's ways of discerning truth. It's like, because it's kind of like the, because other conspiracy theories exist, therefore this must be conspiracy theory. Yes. And it's like, there's a couple steps missing there, which when we start going uh, through our critical thinking series, which we're going to try to get that up at some point, can't guarantee when, but we'll go through syllogisms <laughs> of how do we evaluate whether or not we actually have evidence to substantiate a claim. No, it just is funny because when you look at it, yeah, these conspiracy theories, it really just, it, it, he starts kind of crafting this sort of caricature of what a Christian is. And it's someone who is just blindly holding onto their Bible and smiling while their head is wrapped in tinfoil. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's just not a very charitable look at the other side from, from his perspective. Yeah. And so uh, since I know that we have a lot of atheists that have commented on my Dawkins article, we'll, we'll say, I think there's plenty of blame to go around for Christians characterizing atheists. So as basically, as I think John has an article out there that's kind of satirizing this. I think it's called like, uh, Do Atheists Eat Babies? Oh my gosh. Which ironically, if you've been paying attention to any of the social media, you actually have that lady that was at the, the AOC meeting that starts saying we need to literally eat babies. Have you seen that? No, seriously? Yeah, she. It, it's basically the climate thing. We need to get rid of population. We do not, don't need to just be killing off the babies. We need to be eating the babies. And it's like, you could tell the whole room was like, oh, and I kind of feel sorry for AOC. That it's like, people criticize the way she responded to that. But I'm like, you know what? There's no good way. There's no, there's no <laughs> I'm sorry. But you know, as, as much as I disagree with her ideas, you know what, girl, you did the best you could on that one. So anyway, but that's a total side note. So another, uh, another criticism is this idea of possible doesn't equal probable. And Dawkins seems to ignore this fact. He, he, I actually did a search to see how many times I think the word probably was in the book. And it was like 48 times. It, but, and there's other phrases that are like this. It's kind of like the what if this and what if that and probably this is what happened. And it's this idea of because I can create a scenario in my head that might possibly fit then I don't need to look any, anywhere past that because there's, again, there's that assumption that you can't know for sure. Yep, you might as well toss it aside. Yep, might as well. So uh, the article that I wrote discussed a lot of tactics. So we're going to discuss a little, uh, some of the tactics that he's using because I want us to be able to recognize this as we're going through some of the specific things that are in the chapters. I want to be recognizing the tactics that are being used because that's actually where I think so not to toot my own horn, but I really love the <laughs> image I made for that article of it's um, hilarious. Dawkins as Dr. Dr. Evil. It just came together really well. It's just even even if you don't like the characterization, it's, it's kind of like because I, I said in the article that, you know, that some things that he did were were evil genius, but genius nonetheless. And the, the idea, you know, of course, Dr. Evil was the first one that came to my mind. I was like, OK, that'd be funny. Even if I were Dawkins, I would think it was funny. Because it's a really, well, the, the Photoshop work there. Well done. Well done, me. Pat on the back. He's got a good <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. So I talk about a lot of the tactics that are being used. And I think sometimes more than counter evidence, we need to just be, I think part of critically thinking through something is seeing through the tactics. And what you have to ask yourself with the tactics is, okay, so all of these tactics can be kind of, they can be used for good or for evil. 
it's all methods of persuasion, but you have to ask yourself, is this tactic leading someone towards truth or is it leading kind of more towards propaganda and manipulation? And I want to emphasize again that almost everything that I have listed on there is stuff that people could fault the church for. And so we can't say, oh, this is, this is, you know, this is special to Dawkins or whatever. This is stuff that the church does as well. And there is place, there is a place in church for faith. There's a place in church for emotion. There's a place in, you know, like when it surrounds worship. But when it tr- comes to truth claims, I think that we can say all those things are great. And that might be something that helps convince you. But if, if we want to make it to where it's accessible to someone that's outside your own head, you can't use the stuff in your own head to convince someone who's outside your head. You have to have something that is out in the general realm of reality that is accessible to other people. So here's a couple of the tactics that he uses in here. One of the biggest ones is analogy as evidence. And so we see this all over the place at the beginning where he's talking about all these other gods. I mean, he goes into Greek mythology. He goes into Nordic mythology. Yes. And Zoroastrianism, which (laughs) I mean, is a great word to use in Scrabble. Most people are familiar with, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so just this idea of uh, there's a if there is any kind of analogy to all these other gods, well that's evidence. Well no, that that's not evidence. Just because people have created other religions doesn't mean that none of those religions are true. In fact, I think it would be really hard to counterfeit something that doesn't have some sort of stake in reality. Well, I like analogies, but I I think they're useful analogies. They help you understand things. If you had a crime scene, and you had all sorts of people coming up and saying, oh my gosh, this happened. Oh my gosh, this happened. Even if all their stories didn't quite line up, which is more rational to believe that something happened, but you don't know what, or that nothing happened? This idea that if everybody is independently saying something happened, even if the story is different, the idea that something happened is that one little kernel of truth. And so if we have all these people creating gods, we can either say, What is more likely that there is an actual God and then there's also counterfeits or that there are no gods? Well, how did all these people get this concept of God? This is a kind of reasoning that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity is this idea of we don't have, what if people all over the world had this independent, I think the analogy he gives, had this independent idea of like an appendage that comes off of your forehead, (laughs) but we've never seen it. If you have all these independent people that have this concept, then there's probably some kind of truth there in the past, even though maybe it's not there anymore. If everybody comes to this idea of something, then there's probably something there. But things that don't exist don't have counterfeits. So we don't have a concept of something coming off of our forehead because nothing like that ever existed. The next one is the idea that he assumes that biblical history and Greek mythology have the same amount of evidence. In fact, it seems like that seems to be a reoccurring theme in here that because all these religions exist, they must all have the same amount of evidence for them. Yeah, and they're that they're equally man-made, they're equally imagined, they're each equally created, that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's analogy as evidence. So the next one is begging the question and that's an assumption begging the question, people think it means you say something that makes you beg a question, but Begging the question, would you say that begging the question and circular reasoning are pretty similar? And they're very similar. You're basically assuming what you're trying to conclude. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll just give a, a, a Christian example of this. It was, 
the Bible is true. Well, why is the Bible true? Well, because the Bible says it. And the Bible says it because the Bible is true. That would be kind of an example of begging the question, circular reasoning. And so he has a lot of assumptions. In fact, we're going to go into assumption as fact in a little bit, which will kind of talk more about this. But uh, you listed poisoning the well. Tell me some of the, what that is and how he's used that. So poisoning the well is basically where you sort of badmouth the other side before anybody gets to consider it so that you wouldn't want to be associated with it or consider it to begin with. It's just, yeah. ooh, you know, it, it looks really bad. So I'm not really going to give it a whole lot of credit and I'm just going to ignore it. So it, it's a way of sort of undermining the other idea before considering it fairly. And you see that with some of the things that he says. He uses uh, another thing. It's called no true Scotsman fallacy where he says, no true scholar would believe any of this. Basically saying, if you believe it, you're, you have to just be uneducated or you can't even call yourself someone who's thinking critically if you believe that this could possibly be true. And so you, he sort of has that phrasing within this book of saying, well, this is just so far-fetched, so ridiculous. Uh, he appeals to Hume, who is very critical of anything supernatural, to where, you know, you, as you're reading it, especially if you are someone who doesn't have as much experience or if you're a teen trying to understand, you're like, well, gosh, I don't want to be an idiot. So why am I going <laughs> to believe this here? And so you do. You see that in his writing. And I would say that it also empowers you if you already have kind of an impetus to where you don't want to believe it. This kind of gives you almost like here's a guy on your team who's agreeing that everybody's stupid. And you can now kind of say that with authority because this guy who's a PhD biologist agrees with you. Or I think I read somewhere he's more of a, a zoologist. Yeah, that this guy agrees with you. So it's like, yeah, first off, I think kids are very, let's not just limit this to kids. We're all very prone to be manipulated by shame. This idea, if I associate with this line of thought, then that's shameful. Not that I want to get into politics or anything, but I've heard lots of stories of people who are pro-Trump and won't tell anybody because it's like this shameful thing to admit that you're pro-Trump because the media has made it that you are an absolute imbecile, racist, homophobe, any kind of phobe that you can think of if you support Trump. And so this book is kind of starting out with this epistemology of shame, shall we say, that is just slowly introducing into the kids' minds. No true scholar believes this. No sane person believes this. No rational person believes this. And we can't underestimate how when you're reading stuff like that, it's easy to internalize things as truth that are spoken as truth, even if they have no evidence to support them. It's still getting internalized. When we naturally, we want to trust people. I mean, we want to say, well, look at this guy's credentials. He's not only a PhD, he's got all these honorary degrees that have been awarded to him by prestigious universities. And so that person should have a say. You, you want to believe them, but we have to be careful. Uh, that falls into another fallacy that appeal to authority is you may be an authority figure, but you may not have the ability to speak truthfully about every single subject. I mean, just because you have a, you know, a PhD in zoology doesn't mean you are an authority in ethics, you know, and that's what we have to be careful of too, is we are very quick to see PhD and think, okay, well, he must be a genius on everything. And yeah. it's, it's just not the case. We do have to be careful there. Yeah. And kind of like what we talked about with the J. Warner Wallace book, The Cold Case Christianity, that would be an example of legitimate authority because he's talking about evidence and how evidence works. This man has spent his whole life studying evidence. In fact, uh, you know, he's been on Dateline and CNN. They call him, I think they, he has the quote on his website 
from a guy at Dateline that says, you know, around here we call Jim Wallace the evidence whisperer. So that would be a legitimate authority. And so if someone were talking to him about something else, he doesn't necessarily have authority in that. And so Richard Dawkins, it's like he might have some authority when it comes to science, but he stopped doing science a long time ago. And really, again, went back to that nine to 16 year old uh, understanding of religion and, and tried to be an expert in that. Which is why it's important to, regardless of who's talking to you, whether it's your pastor, your university professor, your third grade math teacher, you know, if they're saying something, don't always take it at face value, you know, investigate it. I think that's just a, a wise tactic because it not only builds your research skills and everything, but there is there is something to say for a healthy bit of skepticism to the point where you want to make sure that you're verifying what you're reading and what you're listening to. And, you know, we're our generation is very much, well, gosh, if it's on a tweet, then it must be true. And <laughs> we we gotta investigate. And but at the same time, we want to recognize that it's like this is kind of a high, a high bar to put for everybody. It's like you can't investigate everything for your for yourself. At some point, you have to trust experts who have studied this more than you because you can't study everything that they've all studied. But it, it's being able to look into who is the authority? Do they have a hidden agenda? And I think it's not that it's a hidden agenda. I think Christians have a tendency to want to find things that bolster Christianity and atheists have a tendency to want to bolster things that tear down Christianity or any other religion. But, you know, for some reason, it usually focuses on Christianity, <laughs> which I think is almost telling itself the fact that most atheists rail against the same religion. Why would they pick just one of all the myriad of religions to rail against? No, that's a good point. It does seem to be Christianity seems to be the main focus. Yeah. And so it's like, that's the one that's getting railed against the most. In my mind, that would be the one that I'm like, hmm, that's the one I should consider most because it seems like all the people who don't believe in religion are angriest at that one. And so it's like, why are they singling it out? Maybe because it's special in some way. Hint, hint. So again, steamroller tactic we go into in the in the article where basically steamroller tactic, I've seen this done in debates. It's it's actually considered like a fallacy, a debate fallacy to do where you give so many statements at a time that there's no way that someone could even begin to address all of them. And I don't even want to say the word evidence. Some sometimes they'll it'll be stated as evidence. But basically, it prevents someone from even studying your claims because you give so many that if they try to focus on one, you can be like, well, I listed 99 other ones. Can you not answer the other 99 other ones? It's like, no, I just don't have time to answer all 100 things that you just listed here. The steamroller tactic gives the impression that the person has provided this bounty of evidence without providing a bounty of evidence. It's usually just a bounty of statements that may or may not be true. Yeah. And it's meant to make the other one sort of stumble and look foolish. I've actually had this happen to me when I was stationed overseas. I was talking to a coworker and, you know, we were just discussing back and forth. And all of a sudden he just goes, question, question, question. And he noticed that other people started in our shop, started turning and listening. So he started hitting me with more and more questions. And I'm like, hold up, let me answer this. He didn't even want to hear. He just wanted to kind of sink the the conversation and make it look like he won just because he asked a billion conversation or, or questions. And you know, you you can't the second you try to answer one, he hits you with another. And so the steamroller track is definitely meant to make you look silly and to make it look like the person asking the question has all of the power when really they're they're just asking questions. And as anyone who has a toddler knows, a question is quick to ask, but it can take a little while to answer them. 
And so then going on to assumptionist fact, which we kind of talk about, there's several things in here that he has assumptionist fact. And these aren't technical phrases. I've never heard someone say assumption as fact. I mean, it, it, that's probably just a priori, which would be the, the Latin. It's uh, you're basically your, what does that mean in Latin? Do you know? A priori. Uh, that means that you have this without actual evidence, like um, physical evidence. Yeah. So it's just like your beginning assumption. So uh, the first one you mentioned was a naturalistic assumption. So talk about that. So you see that a lot in when he's writing, he appeals to Hume quite often. In fact, at one point in, in there, he actually says he wants the reader to think like Hume. Well, if you think like Hume, you're only going to look at evidence that is materialistic in nature. Anything that has any sort of supernatural basis in it, you're supposed to toss out, which you know is great if you want to just constantly have this materialistic result, which is what he wants. He wants people to have this agnostic, this atheist outlook. So if you're going to think like Hume, you're going to get exactly where he wants you to go. But is that the way you should be looking at all evidence? Should you come to the evidence with an idea in mind of what constitutes actual evidence and everything else you're going to toss out? And as we mentioned with J. Warner Wallace, you know, you can't do that going into a crime scene. You have to go and look at everything and then later sift it out. If you go in as well, I'm going to discount all cigarettes and fingerprints. Those can't be counted <laughs> as evidence. You know, obviously, you're going to have some results in your case that aren't going to work out. And so this is just not a not a good way to go at it if you're honestly wanting to critique something fairly. And in fact, uh, the fact that he mentions Hume, I'll just read this is from page 120 in the Mama Bear Apologetics book. If you want to like a real bite size explanation of how Hume thought, I'll, I'll, I'll read this passage from the Mama Bear Apologetics book, page 120. So here's Hume. If we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school of metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning considering matter of fact and existence? No. Well, commit it to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. So and then I said, in, in normal person language, Hume was basically saying that if you can't measure it, count it, experiment on it, or prove it true or false, then it's all just fancy words and isn't real. To which we might ask, did you just use a bunch of fancy <laughs> words to tell us how things with fancy words can't be proven to be real? Are you absolutely sure? And the irony is that he would probably say yes. <laughs> so that's kind of like Hume's thing. Basically, if you can't experiment on it, commit it to the flames. And so... This idea that all we have is the natural world, it's like saying there's no evidence except for all that evidence that doesn't count. The final tactic that we have in here, which I'm sure we're going to discover more as we go through the book, and so we might not even get to chapter one on this podcast, is extreme skepticism, which we have a whole chapter in the Mama Bear book. In fact, I think that was the chapter I was reading from. Yeah, it's called I'd Believe in God if There Was Any Shred of Evidence. I think that's chapter seven, I think. This extreme skepticism, what do you think about that? You see it when you're when you're reading the book to where he says, well, well, we believe if there was enough evidence and then he just, you know, derails absolutely everything to where nothing can even be considered as evidence. So it never seems like there's ever going to be anything good enough. And a bit of the problem with evidence is to some degree, it can be subjective to what you end up believing. But if you already have this sort of stance of, well, I'm not going to believe anything that genuinely supports it, then there isn't going to be enough evidence because you've already tossed it out to begin with. Yeah. And, and I think that's the conclusion that we have in, the, in the, the skepticism chapter is that evidence isn't the issue here. It's there, there is a instinctual 
just rejection of anything that might constitute evidence. And so as long as you reject anything that might constitute evidence, you can always claim that there's no evidence. It's kind of a ridiculous thing. So anyway, so as parents, I'm just going to give like a quick kind of summary of what we talked about and how you can be addressing these with your kids. In fact, I again, I would encourage you to go to the article because I, I have several different things at the end of the article about, you know, how can, what are some things that parents can do to address this? But first off, I would say just in the hyper fundamentalism, you just need to be aware to keep primary issues primary and secondary issues secondary. If we drill into our kids that all issues are primary, that's almost like a Christian version of the steamroller tactic. They have no idea what they should really be focusing on. And so they just, they kind of give up. So just being aware of that hyper fundamentalism. Secondly, I would say, teaching kids the difference between statements and arguments. That someone can state something as if it's true, but they need to be constantly asking, did this person just give reasons for this or did they just make a statement? Oh, yeah. Super important. And especially, you know, this harkens back to Kokel's book on tactics, where if they are actually making an argument, then they have to be the ones to bear the burden of proof. They have to be able to argue for their position. And so, yes, definitely being sure that, you know, if it's a statement, that they're trying to pass off. It's okay, well, what's the evidence? And then I would say being aware of emotional language, kind of being able to tell when someone, and I think I, I kind of gave a challenge to parents on the on the article of like, come up with a story for me where it's like the same story told from two different perspectives. One that like makes the, you know, um, protagonist A look like they're really in the right. And the other one that makes protagonist B or antagonist or whatever subject person, whatever be look like they're in the right, how you can say the same story, or you can say you can give the same information, but it can be skewed one way or another to make you try to emotionally believe something. So understanding the difference between intellectually understanding and emotionally understanding is I think really important. Talk to them about what constitutes evidence. Analogy is not evidence. Analogy is meant to help you understand something, but there's legitimate analogies and non-legitimate analogies. Analogies are usually how something works, not saying, well, because A exists, then B must be A, which is what Dawkins is doing here, because all these other gods exist, then we know they're not true, therefore, the Christian God must not be true. That's not analogy that teach you how something works. That's, that's something pretending to be evidence that isn't. The naturalistic presuppositions, this idea that uh, nature is all there is, natural laws are all this you know, all that exists. I, I talk about this in chapter six in the Mama Bear book. Ask them, what test tube did you get that philosophy from? That's an unprovable statement. You've basically just done philosophy to talk about how you can't do philosophy, which that's what's called a self-refuting statement. So just kind of introducing them to those. We talked about several of these kind of tactics, uh, the begging the question, the poisoning the well, steamroller tactic. Making them aware of tactics, I think, is one of the best ways to help prepare them for when they find them. And we, would, we think that kids aren't savvy to this, but from the number of parents that I've talked about who've taught their kids about bad worldview and bad logic, uh, the, what comes to mind, number one, is Natasha Crane's article on how she's teaching, teaching critical theory to her six-year-olds. And then someone else from the Mama Bear uh, launch team says that they'll be in a movie theater and their kids will yell, bad worldview! So sometimes spotting things, you know, like bad logic, you know, Natasha kind of gave this really brief thing on, on logic with her kids. And for the next week, she kept hearing them scream bad logic from the other room. 
don't underestimate what your kids are and aren't able to grasp even as young as six. So those are some of the ways that I would say that before you even start getting into the evidence of this book, that you would start preparing your kids to actually think through evidence. Yeah, so we didn't. Well, we got we got a little bit into chapter one. We didn't get fully into chapter one. We'll kind of briefly in the next podcast, we'll briefly go into chapter one and then also do chapter two. So I had you pray at the beginning, so I'll go ahead and pray us out. Father God, we just thank you so much for the ability to think well. Lord, we thank you that we were created in the Imago Dei, which means that our reasoning capacity is actually reflecting your reasoning capacity. The fact that we can think logically, Lord, is is reflecting the fact that you are a logical God and you created us to reflect you, Lord. I pray for the parents that are just going through this, that they would be learning how to teach their kids to be discerning, Lord, that sometimes apologetics can feel so overwhelming because it feels like there's all this evidence that you need to memorize when the truth is, Lord, sometimes just learning how to think well. You don't even have to get into the evidence yet. You can just say what they're saying doesn't make sense to begin with. And so sometimes you don't need to counter evidence with something that's not an evidential claim. God, I pray that you would just continue to allow us to, to pick through this book with grace and with truth. Again, Lord, we just, we just pray for Richard Dawkins and his family in this time of grief, Lord, and that you would be with them and that this would be a pebble in the shoe to start making him question the things that really he hasn't gone deeper in since he was, since he was young. We praise you and thank you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.